everybody. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Willie Romano Pugh, and this is The Gods Will Not Save You, The Wire Revisited. Hey there, my name is Jakob, and this is a podcast where we do a deep read into each and every episode of the hit HBO show, The Wire. That's right. Uh, and if you haven't already, please check us out on Anchor. And if you'd like to donate some money, you can go to anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please go ahead and uh, subscribe to us on any platform that you're listening to and give us a five star review. It'd be really helpful. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Shoot, <laughs> swinging for defenses. I like it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> just five stars. Uh, if you have a four star yeah. review in mind, you can just hold hold it for now. I guess. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody listening to this would want to give us anything less than five stars, to be fine, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> so, so are we going to uh, assume that the one star review is someone who didn't listen to us? Because who yeah, could come up with go. such a bad review having actually listened to us? It doesn't make sense. There you go. That's great justification there. Thank you for uh, thank you for yeah. explaining the rationale and also kind of like assuaging my uh, feeling my lowered self esteem from seeing that one star review. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. Kidding. There's no holes in my yeah. There's no holes in my argument. You know that yeah. <laughs> we could possibly have a one star review from someone who listened to us. That's like no exactly. easy way to, there's no easy ways, no easy comebacks, right, Willie? Uh, anyways. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get us, get us going. Come on. So that's probably going to get all edited out. Let's uh, <laughs> move on to discussing season one, episode 12, cleaning up. Great penultimate episode of the first season we got going on here. Oh, yes. Legendary episode. We got George Pelicanos uh, with the teleplay. We got Clement Virgo directing. I know he's one of your favorites. Definitely one of mine. I think we can both be safe to uh, say that we also here at The Gods Will Not Save You like to refer refer to him as Clement Virgo in the context of his, you know, director, uh, directorial work or you know how fantastic he is exactly incredible canadian director also directed episode four old cases where we had a great time talking about his previous work in that episode Um. (laughs) i'm trying to think has my wife listened to episode four yet i think i don't know she has she's that's going to be fun when she hears us and you especially discussing all those uh prior works of hey, Clement Virgo. Is all his work is fantastic. It just happens to be that uh some of his short films have some goofy titles that I had fun uh repeating over and over again. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh but, so what, what but yeah, what else we got just before we get started here on the breaking down this episode about I don't know, your thoughts or the work of Pelicanus well, um, and Clement. Yeah, so this is, I guess, the trend, uh, the beginning of the trend of the Pelicanusian type episode. Is that right? If uh, <laughs> is that the right uh, way to know. describe it? Uh, That's a new him, one. I think for me. <laughs> but uh, there's like a 
inside joke with the cast and crew are yeah there's an inside joke with the cast and crew of the uh the show here that whenever george pelicanos would write an episode it was more than likely to be a bloodbath so to speak he did a lot of i think he did uh the majority of the penultimate season episodes where either people were about to get killed or they got killed so really reliable guy to just uh give us some much needed violence on television in a in a good way where the dialogue is always on point <laughs> much needed uh i guess uh, i mean if that's yeah <laughs> uh but uh, yeah it's it's definitely this is a hard episode to stomach and definitely even rewatching it first it's i mean it still hits hard or if not even harder now knowing all the work that went into to penning wallace's death and uh now learning all right. the backstory into that scene and the this episode which we'll be talking about in a, one of our segment breakdowns all the pieces matter so stay tuned for that coming up shortly here uh but yeah i don't know if i needed this though as as much as you did apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's just been bit like the show the yeah. show has slowly been building up to a lot of these like breakout moments throughout this episode yeah. i mean it's a hot it's a hot-headed episode. We got Bodie and Poot killing Wallace. We got D'Angelo getting arrested and exploding on Stringer. Uh, Lieutenant Daniels going on his truth-telling tour of just fucking giving it to all the people that are trying to challenge his knowledge and his authority on these things. Um, well, I mean, we just got we got a whole array of things. So yeah. let's, uh, you want to get into, yeah, one of those... Uh storylines or not theme the yeah. storyline of uh wallace's death here which is the uh yeah. central central story of this of this episode that's right so we have uh wallace coming back to uh resume his position with d'angelo in the pit after he goes stir crazy at his grandma's house um and he is <laughs> i'm like looking to you for approval like am i saying this right <laughs> oh yeah but we'll um, get into all the geo and all that soon so you know whatever you got whatever yeah. you got it's all good but there's like already a lot of doubt in d'angelo's mind as to whether or not this is a good decision for him he tries to talk him out of coming back to his old job and maybe re-enrolling in high school because he has a little more first-hand knowledge of how this whole game is played um we got daniels and i don't was it kima getting shot that kind of like sidelined the details attention to wallace because it seems yeah. like at one point they totally forgot that uh they had him as like potential you know they wanted to use them on, on the grand jury and when they realized the trend of the organization kind of tying up all loose ends and killing people that might snitch on them they immediately think of wallace and you know scramble at the last minute to try and get a hold of him so they can protect him yeah um, that's similar to like bubbles not you know being able to break through sobriety it's like wallace is another victim of the fallout of Kima's shooting and kind of highlighting how you know 
unorganized things are where Daniels or, you know, it seems like everyone forgot to just call some, like make the call that Daniels eventually makes. Like, hey, can someone go check up on him? He's just down, you know, he's not, he's not in like Virginia. He's, he's still in Maryland, technically, you know, on the Eastern shore. So, um, yeah, right. Hard, hard pill for them to he's swallow. Catacly- kind of like cataclysmic events just like a bunch of different little things adding up to a really tragic event where so yeah we see wallace like making an attempt to like kind of like readjust back to the lifestyle you know he's kind of playing like father figure to a lot of these young kids again and there's a shot of like poot kind of like ad you know admiring him and his like gentle spirit Uh, early on in the episode Um, but then you know all these suspicions about his safety are confirmed in a couple of scenes one where uh, Stringer and Avon are kind of interrogating D'Angelo about his whereabouts and then Stringer more or less just asking Bodhi to take it upon himself to execute him Um, putting Bodhi in like a more troubled position than I think a lot of people realize when they might first see the show that they don't realize that he is kind of trapped in like a toxic mentality too and if there was like any way that he decided to like refuse his order he probably would have gotten killed by Stringer too or like made an example of somehow but I'm sorry what were you gonna say? I'm just I'm just enjoying your uh, your analysis here. <laughs> if anything, I was gonna say like, uh, are you you know you're like dipping your head like I'm like what, what's Willie up like what's he getting into Is that like how you, you're getting into your flow like you're, you're bypassing the mic like, <laughs> doing like a Stevie Wonder uh, sway or something? <laughs> like, oh, uh, I don't know. It's just natural. Um. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, yeah I mean, keep you're you're rolling. I'm just like yeah yeah. It's all great salient points here. But it just seemed like all the foreshadowing comes to like a head in this episode, where they're signaling to us all throughout that the inevitable is going to happen and that Michael B. Jordan is going to be exiting the show. But still, when the moment comes, it's more like drawn out and painful than we could have ever imagined. Um, with Bodhi and Poot taking it on themselves to do the deed. And Poot was the one that seemed reluctant to like carry out the orders or whatever. But he's the one that uh, kind of pushes Bodhi over the edge into actually finally pulling the trigger. And Poot is the one that finally like does the final shots that end up killing Wallace and putting him out of his misery. So we see... Uh, like it's a interesting inversion of like the expectations we have of the characters because Bodhi tends to be kind of like a hard ass throughout the whole show up until this point but we see him like having second thoughts about doing it and then Poot who seems like harmless and kind of like thick and is always like making dumb jokes and stuff is the one that like actually takes it upon himself to like do the fatal shots and then like help perform the cover up with like having that girl call in the the murder so yeah some really great uh 
ways of paying off what we've been expecting all the season, albeit they do it in unexpected ways that play with our expectations of these characters. So really masterful work done here. They did a really great job of cleaning things up much like yeah. the title of the episode yeah truth truly <clears throat> i think another thing that stood out was kind of the uh the introduction of brianna barksdale into the fold and and dropping right. off uh, d'angelo emile while wallace is trying to convey his uh you know his true feelings in a way to convince d who is really the last person he needs to convince that he's like really about baltimore and you know the west side and you know their operation but uh right you know and then kind of the juxtaposition of mcnulty and and daniels tracking down wallace's mother and uh you know like essentially the scene right after wallace is killed right right so just showing how yeah. things aren't uh you know lining up you know they're always a, they're a step behind in this case as they are and know. how wallace like we see wallace like pleading for his life and crying and like pissing his pants like really a vulnerable moment and in the very next scene we see like how terrible his mom <laughs> really yeah. is and how like, it probably like led him like we have like a more of an explanation as to how he got how he was because his mom was like probably really abusive to him and as he mentioned you know before when they were out to eat in uh the hot dog or the the diner which we'll get into um especially with pelicanos being the uh the food reference man apparently so we'll have some fun breaking that yeah. down but you know in a more uh, yeah, I mean, this is a sad scene, like the last uh, supper or whatever you want to call it with, with them, even though no one's able to really eat. It's like a sadistic friends like outing where no one's going to, uh, you know, actually be able to stomach anything, especially Putin knowing what's about to happen. Uh, also interesting. Well, I don't know how this relates or if I'm fishing here, but how it's like kind of what what sent Wallace into the spiral that is eventually, you know, has led to his demise and pointing out Brandon while while he was out out and about with Poot. It's kind of like another parallel maybe to where they're, you know, hanging out somewhere outside of their environment, similarly to how, you know, Poot and Wallace were out playing video games on that night that kind of you know, led yeah. him to his conscious getting the best of him and all that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and basically what I was saying also is that Wallace mentions how his mom's like an alcoholic right there at the diner where it's like, yeah, you know, she would pour Bacardi in her soda or whatever. And then yeah, Bodhi's right. like, exactly. look at you talking about, he's like trying to hype himself up there. Like, yeah, it's like another reason why he deserves to die. He's like soft talking about his mom, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like Bodhi yeah. trying to reason with himself knowing that it's wrong, but he's like, like he said, he has, he has no option. So pretty messed up. And then I love, yeah, I love like, uh, Wallace's reaction to that afterwards where he's like, man, you don't have to be so hard all the time, which is like, yeah, exactly. Really? Sum it really sums up his, uh, his misplacement in this kind of community that having yeah. like any kind of like sensitivity or vulnerability is a weakness. 
yeah, he's like, I got to think, you know, I just got to thinking on her. Like, even though what triggered the memory is that she used to, you right. know, pour Bacardi in her soda, she's an abusive mom. We can, you know, kind of there it's insinuated like negligent at best uh, uh but you know it's like well she said i'm gonna she said yeah, like i'm, I'm gonna, gonna slap the bright out of his eyes exactly so you know abusive negligent alcoholic she's trying to get her drink on while mcnulty and daniels are asking her like hey what we have you know the questions we have for you can potentially save your son's life and she's like well i just want to drink so can you can you get on with it uh, but then, yeah, you could see like Bodie's wheels kind of turning like, hmm, like mom, what, we learned from his grandmother that his mom left him when he was like four or something. Right. So he's like, God damn it. Like, right. I don't think like you don't see me here thinking about my mom who's left me and she was like a drug addict. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh it's a hard, hard, hard episode, man, to watch. A lot of toxic masculinity on display here. <laughs> it all comes back to that for us, huh? You're like, <laughs> you're like toxic masculinity. <laughs> but uh, uh, also the yeah, dis- disintegration of our social fabric and institutions. But toxic masculinity—that's at the top of the list <laughs> behind Wallace's death. No. <laughs> Isn't toxic masculinity at the root of all the institutions falling apart? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, nah. we'll, we'll, we'll maybe get an expert on here one day to discuss, uh, these themes of toxic, toxic masculinity. I don't, I don't really yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know enough about it really. Like just <laughs> as a theory, but anyways, yeah. or like, uh, it's not a theory. It's real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. You, you just keep digging yourself deeper yeah. into that. Whole I don't know. I don't know enough about it and I should shut up now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Um, but it's all we also see a, a kind of like crack in uh, D'Angelo's steely exterior after he's, you know, he's caught on the wire with Avon talking about going to get drugs from New York. So then they place a tracking device on his rental um, and he gets pulled over and arrested. And uh, he finds out in the interrogation room from McNulty that Wallace has been shot and killed. And at first he's kind of doubtful of it. But then you see in a scene with him, Stringer, and Levy where they're, like, jumping to conclusions that he's the one who messed up and they're going to try to talk about what he, what legal strategies he can adopt. Um, in a very famous scene, he just kind of, like, has a oh, emotional yeah. outburst where he just keeps repeatedly asking, where where's Wallace? Not even caring about what his status is at this point, that he's a pariah and everything. Um, yeah, D'Angelo. And I guess it... it yeah, he breaks at this point and is not afraid to show how vulnerable he is and upset that, you know, a kid got killed over all their negligence and everything. Um, showing that yeah. he, I mean, if he wasn't Avon's nephew, he would have been dead by this point, probably. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, he, he'd be done. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, man, it's crazy. Also, I mean, I know we're we're going to be talking a little bit more about that and moving into some other of the storylines of the episode, but going back to what you said about Poot taking over in a way at, at this at the shooting, 
of Wallace and uh, kind of finishing up, cleaning up maybe what Bodhi couldn't finish, surprisingly, but also showing, you know, Bodhi's, the com- complexity of his character and how he'll evolve or his arc moving forward. But like you had said, he, you know, he then had the girl call uh, call it in and how he said, you know, tell, tell them that there's an animal inside an animal hurt inside kind of just like reducing wallace's you know his death it's he doesn't even have the uh, honor of going out as like oh yeah there's a human being who's in that building and it kind of reminds yeah and it's like reminds me of the uh, later seasons when they're you know lester and bunk are hot on marlo's in, in a chris and snoop's tale as far as all their murders and how there's like a shot of one of those uh, on the vacant house. It's like if animal trapped inside, please call this number. And it kind of reminded me of that. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought that up because, uh, yeah, um, it is like a there the the killings and the vacants are such a like easy thing to get away with. It seems like in this show, so it's only natural that something as horrifying as this, the Annie will only get upped in season four when they are just straight up um, <laughs> abandoning corpses in buildings that they hope people are never going to look into. Like the brutality only gets worse from this point on. It seems like yeah, because at least in this scene, not to backtrack too much here but it's it's like wallace is killed in that same room where just you know we can assume the day before whenever like you have mentioned poot kind of admiring his humanity and taking care of the kids and uh giving them food and that same tupac posters the backdrop so it's safe to assume that that's the same location um this is not a geo breakdown to anyone out there this is just thinking on that but yeah it's like not a i mean it's a it's a vacant more or less but it's occupied it seemed like it had just been a place where people actually lived and young children so but uh yeah we'll get more into all that in our breakdown segments but yeah you were mentioning yeah brilliant scene with uh d'angelo and you know I wonder if he had come up on the list of, uh, you know, Levy at, at Levy's direction. Avon and and String started brainstorming who could, you know, hurt them and who they need to clean up. So we know that Wallace obviously made that list, and same as Nikisha Lyles, the security guard killed that you had mentioned or alluded to. So yeah. I wonder how, yeah, if we would have been able to see them a little bit longer in that setting at the bar. It's like, oh, D'Angelo what's up with him but well, instead they just he, send him he, on a he probably wouldn't he probably wouldn't have he probably wouldn't have been on that list because avon asks him to yeah. go to new york to pick up the package right yeah but says, it's like, like how can we use him how can we use him a little bit like a little more yeah because it is like a suicide like, mission right like i mean come on even though brianna's kind of she's admonishing uh you know her brother like going full big sister on him like what like <laughs> you don't know about a trap car or like a mule or why, why are you sending my son alone in a rental car to jersey 
uh, to get a kilo, you know, it's just, it makes no sense, really. I don't understand. Like, what do you think? Like, is it a, just a judgment error on Avon's part? Like, he's so stressed about his stash getting busted and, you know, everyone having to switch up, uh, you know, throw away their pagers and strings given everyone or at least the important lieutenants or underlings. I mean, they, burners. they pretty much... I mean, but they pretty much, like, were relatively careful about, like, everything that was going on. They just didn't know that they had placed a fiber optic cable in their wall the day before and could get them on footage saying saying incriminating shit. Um, But it was, you know, I had forgotten about, like, them killing Nakisha Lyles off and then yeah. when I listened to David Simon talk about this in the director or the, you know, creator commentary of this episode, where he is talking about like testing the viewers' memory about like whether or not they even remember who this character is that they just killed off, like, um, you know, testing our patience for us to like retain that information 12 episodes into the season you know which is different from like a lot of typical cop shows where everything is revolved within the hour and it's like so i recognize who that was it took me a minute and i'm like oh damn they killed her like this is it's just like the fact that she was such a minor character that we could have forgotten about in the beginning and then we get reminded of it like proves how vicious and exacting they are in like trying to keep everything clean that even if they have a suspicion of this woman like doing anything remotely out of pocket they just have to kill her (laughs) yeah Yeah, and she even had like maybe it was stringer or someone kind of almost half-heartedly defended you know potentially or you know the killing over like oh we paid her out though like and then i think it was avon it could be vice versa but it's like no no chances there it doesn't matter that we paid her off so it's like wow not even you know so it just makes it seem even all the more plausible why they would kill wallace pretty crazy pretty crazy and she did what they told them to right it's pretty that's even exactly. that's even crazier wallace on the hand is just like actually snitching on them which i mean as sad as the episode is it does like even though no one really has no one has proof right i mean they all have their suspicions and it turns out that you know stringer's right and Bodie is right Te- like technically speaking and that poot and d'angelo maybe are clouded by their affection of wallace uh and it's why they couldn't it's why they couldn't end up arresting stringer when they came in because uh you know they killed off wallace who was going to testify before the grand jury so it ended up saving them in ways they probably weren't even expecting crazy stuff but what other uh, storylines we want to focus on here now that we've talked about wallace and D'Angelo getting busted. I know that we had talked previously about, uh, you know, Daniel's truth-telling tour you had mentioned or the brilliant uh, phrase you used to tie it, you know, succinctly together. Yeah. Well, it just seems like uh, the way that Bunk referred to Lieutenant Daniels as being a company man, that company man is maybe dead in this episode or maybe he's just taking a long sleep. And Lieutenant Daniels, the righteous, you know, officer, 
awakens with full fury in this moment um, where he, you know, is pleading with the deputy to, again, expand the scope of the case so they can get more information. And um, he, you know, kind of lets uh, State Senator Clay Davis know in their first face-to-face meeting that he knows that there is, like, probable cause for them, you know, taking one of his drivers into questioning and basically acknowledging that he knows his money is dirty. Um, And like up until this point, he hadn't been quite so blunt with his superiors about these grievances he was having. But he like really he's different from McNulty in the sense that like he really feels the weight of the loss or the potential loss of Kima and that like he feels like a kinship to her because of like how great of a work, you know, how great of a job she's been doing for him all this time. You know, McNulty just wants to serve his own narcissism with this case. Um, But Lieutenant Daniels, like, actually feels the loss of life. So he's kind of, like, railing against the system at this point because he feels so enraged that they, you know, they endangered Kima's life. And now they're kind of trying to, like, squander all the good work she's been doing this whole time. So really powerful uh, character shift for Lieutenant Daniels' character in this episode and some great work from lance reddick i have to say myself definitely great work and we'll yeah lance reddick will get his uh do shout out by us in our little breakdown all the pieces matter right but uh but yeah i mean they're trying to kind of jerk him around on the wire right like Oh, it's over now. Even and even though he knows it, it is too, Lieutenant Daniels. That you know, they've obviously shut everything down in wake of the uh, stash house getting busted and all that. He's still pushing for the full, full uh, term, right, or the full time frame mm-hmm. that they were allotted by by Judge uh, Phelan, right? If I'm getting that correct. But yeah, we have another Bobby Reed, right? Uh, Siding. Of course, if yeah. Daniels is talking to Burrell, Bobby Reed's got to be there and he's like trying to punk Daniels, right? He, what, he says something kind of, yeah, he's pretty aggressive towards him. He's like, like, uh, you know, whatever, the deputy's asking you something or what are you going to do about it? Like more or less, just paraphrasing. Well, he's trying to, he punks him at one point, but then, like, when Burrell kind of shifts gears into praising Daniels and telling him he did a good job and letting him know these career opportunities, Bobby Reed does bring up, like, that one of the majors is retiring soon in yeah. one of the districts or something, kind of, like, as a nod yeah. to him. Like, you know, if you keep your mouth shut and continue yeah. to do what we say. <laughs> the Northwest yeah, is opening up. Yeah. Northwestern. Yeah. It's yours, but, but that he, like a, a great little, uh, bit Lance Reddick's brilliance, you know, utilizing his, his subtleties, or as you say, like restraint and, and, and the acting performances of this show, uh, which are so brilliant. Uh, where yeah Burrell's like who, you know who's that like hum from the pawn shop and uh that brain dead guy uh Valchek's son-in-law like you could keep those two and he's just like you know oh yeah yeah he knows he knows he got the good end of the bargain yeah so he's he's winning he's winning this exchange uh but then yeah I mean from here things kind of 
well, yeah, I mean, the stakes raise or even raised even higher towards the end of the episode and the final interaction with Burrell and, and Daniels where, uh, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty crazy how, uh, I don't, I don't want to jump too far ahead. So jump in here if I'm, if I'm getting ahead of myself, but just from trying to recall, uh, from memory, it's like, uh, yeah, basically Burrell's calling him, calling him out, like, basically bluffing or not even he has the receipts apparently in the binder regarding daniel's past transgressions <laughs> in the eastern so it's like a huge showdown right. yeah and daniel's is like not having yeah. it like you would have already done it uh oh yeah but wait i skipped over uh clay davis right yeah <laughs> Well, I, I, I talked about, you know, they have their first uh, face-to-face interaction. I had briefly talked about how Lieutenant Daniels kind of, like, calls him on his bullshit. But uh, we didn't mention that Burrell, or I guess Clay Davis, comes into the office to reassure Lieutenant Daniels that there's no need for them in the detail to be pulling their campaign finance reports to see their... Uh, financial connections to anybody in the Barksdale organization. So we see some great, uh, you know, pivoting on Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s uh, part here where, you know, he plays the role of like a sleazy but smiling politician in the beginning. And when Lieutenant Daniels keeps like ducking his little traps and stuff, he pivots, he, he pivots brilliantly into attack dog, so to speak. But yeah. Really great Irv, scene. you better tell this motherfucker. Yeah. Uh anyways. Yeah, great scene. <laughs> okay, now <laughs> All right, man. Um so yeah, from there, I mean, we'll see the final showdown with Burrell and Daniels where I mean, similar to earlier episodes, right, regarding the wire and I mean, basically it's not the first time that Daniels has pushed back on Burrell. I mean, he did in this episode already, but at the end Basically, yeah, Burrell's th- outright, you know, he's threatening him outright with the, he pulls out that binder that looks like, you know, right. has receipts related to uh, Daniels' like FBI investigation that was opened regarding uh, potential corruption or all the money he came into when he was out in the DU on the east, in the Eastern back in the day, which similar to... Nikisha Lyles' death or murder in this episode, a callback to a really early, uh, you know, scene where it's alluded to, you know, Daniels being corrupt by Fitzhugh. Right. So just making sure we're all paying attention. What do you think yeah. on that? What do you think on that scene? Uh, I think it's great. I think uh, uh, Lance, they both play uh, their cards really well in terms of their performance. And uh, I think it's also great, but really frustrating that we never figure out specifically what yeah. Daniels did. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we can only assume it's, I, I mean, I probably would say it's something along the lines of what we saw Herc and Carver pull off or maybe that's why he was understanding or like he not necessarily understanding, like he called them out on their potential grift or stealing of the money that they didn't actually steal. But he's like, okay, I know how this game goes. Like, eh, there's some subtle hints, but 
who knows maybe it was way more complex than just taking money off of drug dealers but uh we'll never know a wise man said once right <laughs> uh <laughs> But yeah, doesn't he push back on Burrell with some of like, hey, there's dirt on you too out there? Or is he more or less just saying like, hey, if, if you know, if you, if, if that's what you wanted to do with me, you had already done it. But, you know, and then he gives like the famous line, you'd rather live in shit than work a shovel. Fantastic line. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's not having it, Daniels. He's in it. He's, yeah, he's committed to seeing the investigation through and displeased with you know everything all the loss uh, as all the collateral that's been you know created or built up and you know where the investigation's actually headed so like you said Kima's dear to him so he doesn't feel it's worth the playing the game right now I guess well he's playing it but it's more or less his you know his way that makes sense (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, Will. It's heating um, up in here, man. It's heating up in my hot box area. So if I start getting loopy, just, so just reel me back in, okay? All right. I'm so sorry about that. Um, what the? <laughs> there was... <laughs> Only there was, you would be like, you just said something completely asinine and like, like let me let me let me offer a response that he won't be able to decipher as like earnest and genuine like genuine or <laughs> like completely just shitting on me like uh, i'm really sorry <laughs> you're, you're a great act you're a great actor i i honestly can't tell no that i mean i know how it is being in like a really hot <laughs> i know i know your pain hey, is all i'm saying it's not painful. i should have just I'm said just saying i know that. your pain no, I I know, I know your pain. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Nice. What uh, what else? Um, we got? There is something I wanted to ask you about with Uh-oh. the uh, the fiber optic cable or like the wire they put. Yeah. In. Yeah. So where is? Are they like next door, drilling into Orlando's? Yeah, I think that's pretty much. Yeah, this kind of ties into what we could get into, right? With like Lester's uh, foray into advanced surveillance techniques, and right. we'll talk about all that. But yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, that's that's like there's some empty office or something next door because uh, all the whatever blueprints that Lester pulled out or the math and and Chardin's step count and all that good stuff. Uh, you know that went into determining where the best place would be to plant another surveillance device kind of led them to that to that vacant office that yeah i guess it's adjacent shares a wall with the uh, orlando's but yeah i mean I, because herc is like revving up the drill and then they're like shut up it's three in the morning or whatever so keep it cool but why would i guess i got a question for you if that my answer helped but why would Avon knowingly, you know, have his, or I mean, I guess that it, I'm answering my own question again, sorry. But yeah, I guess it would make sense he'd want like a vacant office next next to his office to try to prevent people from like spying on him or having people nearby for greater privacy. But that's actually like his demise that there is a vacant office because it allows them to, to 
yeah, do some intricate uh, surveillance. <laughs> Without a warrant, as yeah, what, Mr. Freeman said, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, too. It's like, how did this... Is this, like, under the guise of the the, wire, the original wiretap or something? But, like, yeah, you just answered that question, too. So, thank you. You're a step ahead of me today. So. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, yeah. But, uh... Good well, because he... <laughs> And the way I, I really, well, maybe we could talk about this in the All the Pieces Matter segment because it, like, ties into how I think about it, like, in a cinematic way. But, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Do so, you have any but, other? Well, we were going to, I guess, yeah, now it's like that's the trick. Like, when do I talk? Like, I don't want to think too hard. But like, should I talk about this now or say it? But, yeah, I thought it was funny, the... uh the interactions that that led to uh, the details infiltration of the vacant office that this fiber optics cable which kind of reminiscent of the surveillance footage that Fitzhugh shows McNulty in episode one right right and that Pimlico stash house that we've talked about a few times yeah Yeah. so uh, just how Lester you know is like going full uh how how wise you know how wise he is and just like schooling everyone throwing out military terms like wait none of you like none of you served draft dodging peace freaks pretty pretty classic line yeah. there so and, and then, it's also uh, i was just gonna say no uh, go ahead how he makes uh her go gather the supplies that they're going to utilize you know <laughs> with sardines uh you know in with orlando at Orlando's, well, not with Orlando, he's he's dead. But uh, yeah, it's like Herc, who had just celebrated scoring 17th on the sergeant's exam or whatever place he's in, as opposed to Carver, who studied and was all like proper about it. And he's like, "Yeah, you go get it. Like, who else? Who? I'm not looking at anyone else. Herc, you get me my goddamn like ruler and string or whatever. It's pretty funny." Because Lester's still yeah. a bat. He's still badass, you know. And he's also like and fin- finessing his way to that relationship still. Yeah. And Simon and Pelicano said that uh, his draft dad dodging Peace Freaks line was a Ed Burns, uh, Ed Burns edition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just, Willie, I was just talking about how we'll save that for the all the pieces matter. Uh, sorry, my shit was... <laughs> My shit was cutting out a little bit, so I might have missed the. We can rearrange. I'll I'll bring it up again for that segment. What whatever you got to say, Willie. Whatever you got to do, man, to cover to clean up on your end. If that's what you got to, <laughs> if that's the story you're going with. No, <laughs> <laughs> nah, but yeah, I mean, more surveillance. But I don't know. Like, what do you think about Chardine's, uh undercover work and that whole storyline to be honest with me it's never really been one of my favorite aspects of this the latter half of this season it's like i don't know it's i mean it's it's definitely brilliant work regardless on behalf of everyone involved i know sometimes i'm a little critical of all these things in in hindsight but you know obviously when i was watching it the first time i was like oh my god this is crazy but it's like, oh, she's up there. She's she's been 
I guess it's better than what she's been doing where that one scene in an episode previously where she's literally just has her ear up to the door. It's like, how dumb is this? You know? <laughs> and now she has a, like, a, like an earpiece in her hair or whatever. And it's like, um, you know, obviously she's terrified. There's a great scene with, with Avon coming out of the, uh, the safe room or, you know, kind of giving that, that gaze into the mirror, which may be something you were going to talk about stylistically. So I don't want to tread on that, but, and then she gets freaked out and then runs directly to the van. So it's kind of like, it seemed like they were parked pretty close to Orlando's <laughs> in that surveillance van. So why would you just like, like everyone seeing you probably take a cab to work or walk in. So why would, if anyone were to see her, it's like, oh, Chardin got a car. Like she's got a van. That's, that's weird. But maybe I'm again, splitting hairs. It's okay. It's good. It's good for you to come to terms with these things and discuss it with the <laughs> Wire fan base community. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Thank you for helping me come to terms with all these all these things that that, that just that just keep me up, Willie. Like, ah, it's the twenty two hundred block of Landville. Like, uh, but this is fun. I'm I'm glad I get yeah. to hash this out with you, bud. But I don't know. Uh, what else? about that surveillance or Lester's kind of foray into this. Maybe we've covered all those points. I don't know. I, I don't have much else to say. Yeah, I don't know what else we can cover. Uh, Kima's on the men, you know. She's yeah. in the hospital bed and recovering. Uh, McNulty finally admits that all this was just like in an attempt to like boost his big ego. Um, yeah, uh, they, they catch Avon, they arrest him and, uh, oh yeah, uh, assistant state's attorney, Rhonda Perlman finds out from her boss that, uh, the people she was working with in the detail had been pulling campaign finance reports and has, uh, the state's attorney's office a little spooked. So that's another development that will serve as some, you know, foreshadowing down the line when we get into the more political aspects in season three. Yeah. What's the, we, I know I may have been guilty of, uh, messing up the whole, uh, hier- <laughs> a state's attorney hierarchy. Maybe last, I know that like I sound so, uh, average viewer in the last episode, like, wait, what? Ronnie's not oh she's the assistant state's attorney and then I don't know if I alluded to her her partner at the uh Savino hearing with Levy and all that um you know like oh that's the real state's attorney like obviously she's not either it's this man who yeah is a little upset and you had uh generously pulled pulled up the information well Willie, you know off the top of your head, of course, the real state's attorney's name. <laughs> uh, what's his name again? I can't. I can't remember what you told me. Uh, state's attorney Stephen Demper, played by yeah. Doug Roberts. Yeah, and we'll get into all that and Doug Roberts soon in our little breakdowns. And you just zoomed in on your head. That was a little interesting. Uh, <laughs> Did you do that? What are you doing? <laughs> You're messing with me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty crazy. All tied in, obviously, to, uh, you know, the two duds that, well, in Burrell's eyes, right, that, that Daniels gets to keep. <laughs> uh, right. But yeah, she's a little dumbfounded, like, what the hell is going on? 
this guy Jimmy just never stops like messing with me. It's just it's nonstop. Like even though I've trying to distance myself from him, but yeah, she's like, "Have you ever heard of anyone giving back their donations?" Right to Daniels yeah. and maybe this is like whole little uh, you know maybe yeah it's all just a part of her uh, you know trajectory as far as uh, hooking up with Daniels and their relationship moving forward right so right you know Jimmy's not all bad right and, and her involvement with him <laughs> there you go at least she kind of gets to meet someone be- who's you know better than he is as far as being a more stable less uh, narcissistic uh, obsessed weirdo like Jimmy is, but there you go, yeah, uh, yeah, pretty crazy stuff, and uh, yeah, but we'll talk all about all that stuff as this show progresses. Really interesting as far as following that dark money trail, but uh, yeah, the last, the final uh, arrest scene, it's interesting, right? I know you alluded to that before we kind of backtracked here, but. If you want to give your thoughts and then, you know, I'll uh, also do my best to add to the conversation. Uh-huh. Go ahead. <laughs> um, <so. laughs> it's uh, fun. Like, I just think it's really funny how they like play on our expectations of these. T- yeah. I was maybe going to save this for all the pieces matter. Yeah. 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 It's interesting stuff, but just. I mean, like the basic breakdown would just be how, you know, it's like, shit, yeah, you're right. How do we, how do we discuss this without, like, cause we just want to like, instinctually we're just such savages in like this breakdown wire podcasting game. We just want to like <laughs> instantaneously dive into like everything and you know, anything that presents itself in the storyline. But Hey, since we're trying to new, you know, more engaging well we hope uh you know layout here of our show uh you know i mean i guess we could just say that you know it's kind of ridiculous the amount of uh cops that they have outside of this place kind of yeah just poking or prodding at the like uh over militarization of like these police uh responses you know it's like come on now and then you just have McNulty and Daniels bypass everyone to just go in right. and like talk to them like human beings, you know? Right. Um, so do you want to get into our first segment? Yeah, that's, that's the fun, you wanna, right? You want to get into the wire universe? Oh, sure. Okay. So, Again, uh, well, yeah, there's, at, at first glance, my first, uh, well, how do I say this? Definitely didn't watch this episode twice. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, just at first glance, it's like, oh, man, another uh, seemingly, well, there aren't many. There aren't too many references now that, it seems like now we've gotten into uh, the real, like, you know the culmination of everything it's really just centered around those uh all the storylines coming together so all the little like references that got us here it's it's not as you know involved for me as it as it has been um so yeah like again and i'm really happy that we 
piloted these these new breakout segments in the in the episodes with the least amount of callbacks so uh <laughs> you know if you want all that uh dense information please you know mine through the hours and hours of uh, content that we've previously recorded i think the first one that stood out to me when Nikisha Lyles is murdered and you have the two beat cops or patrolmen that come across her dead body, um, you know, kind of remarking on like, man, this isn't even an armed housing police, you know, that uh, in cities you'll see, you know, are the cops specifically designated to patrol housing projects. They're like, this is just a civilian security guard, like, goddamn. And then at, back at Homicide Headquarters, they mentioned the, the detective who's going to, or who caught the case as Garvey. And I probably mentioned this name before, but I think that's a direct callback to Rich Garvey, who was a homicide detective who was pretty prominently uh, featured in David Simon's book, which I've mentioned now, it seems like dozens of times, Homicide, You're on the Killing Streets. Uh, the, so, and I don't know, I know I had my... <laughs> Let's see here. How do I? It's been a few episodes since I may have thought about, or since I referenced like uh, some of David Simon's comments that I picked up on one of his his videotaped uh, talks. Maybe it was Audacity of Despair or another. Mm, yeah, I think it was some. It was another. It wasn't specifically that talk. If you haven't checked it out, you know, check our social media. We've posted a few of his great, uh, informative, insightful talks he's given about the wire and all the themes that are involved and so forth. But he mentioned uh, there was uh, a cop who, I mean, big surprise in Baltimore in the, you know, 80s was like a racist in his personal life, it seemed, uh, and would like openly say and remark, you know, in racist ways and seemingly in front of Simon. That's where he got this information from. But on the job was like a huge, really professional in Simon's words, which I'm like, okay. But anyways, <laughs> in Homicide, he doesn't specifically call out anyone for being racist. If anything, there's like a lot around Donald Warden, who I mentioned um, previously. It's been like a white guy who wasn't racist, and that was like seemingly an anomaly. Uh, <laughs> even like though he came up in an earlier generation in Baltimore. But basically my point here is that in hearing Simon's remarks about this cop who was like an open racist in his private life, um, not necessarily on the job, being a little repetitive here, but uh, he wouldn't mention the name, of course, David Simon, and, and but in describing his... Uh, his record on the force, especially referencing that year that he chronicled the department as having like a really historic run as far as solving all these cases. It parallels the cases and the clearance rate of that of Rich Garvey. So it led me to maybe uh, equate like, oh shit, is that the, uh, the racist guy Simon was talking about? <laughs> I don't have any like outstanding proof or like anything blatant that was I can call back on to reference as evidence, but I could surmise, you know, but I got to be careful because I don't want to get like sued. But <laughs> anyways, uh, let's see. <laughs> um, there's a few other references like, uh, oh, yeah. Um, well, this could kind of fit in geography, but we'll just give it a go here. Um, well, we know. Pelicanos is on, you know, we've talked about him as being the writer of these penultimate episodes. And um, stylistically, 
I'd noticed there's definitely some callbacks or you know just things that stood out to me even before watching the commentary to this episode where having read a lot of his novels I'm like oh this sounds like a lot of things Pelicanos would write about or you know it sounds like his voice or prose or whatnot if that is a correct terminology reference or whatever uh but yeah apparently the references to food are all uh callbacks to Pelicanos so you know along with people like main characters dying uh as being something that's an obvious point to pelicanos if you hear characters incessantly talking about or referencing food you know pelicanos is is on uh, writing on the episode because they mention uh, hot dogs a lot like uh, what's pissing off lester while they're doing surveillance uh you know is it it's sidner and herc right or is it carver and herc yeah uh, Carver's not even in this episode, I believe. Okay, yeah. so, yeah, what like a, a moment of Lester just like in an old school way, like, you Ivy Leaguers, shut up. Or like, I'm like, oh, damn. I don't, <laughs> I don't even get that reference. But I think that, uh, yeah, the hot dogs they're eating are a reference to Priebus Brothers, which apparently are George Pelicanos' favorite chili dogs in Baltimore. Um, and I think that's also the same place where... Uh, yeah, uh, Bodie, Poot, and Wallace go eat at Priebus Brothers, but kind of ties into Baltimore in that the uh, founder of the restaurant, uh, I think his name is John Priebus, was a Greek immigrant, similar to Pelicanos' mm. background being a, you know, uh, having Greek heritage, being the son of Greek immigrants. Uh, and that actually John Priebus's grandson, also named John Priebus, became a uh, Baltimore circuit court judge. So um, he passed away in 2010, but yeah, so kind of just a little tie into some Baltimore history. And yeah, interesting how out of that uh, hot dog uh, establishment, restaurant, whatever you want to call it, it... Uh, yeah, kind of contributed to someone who became a pretty prominent member of the Baltimore legal system. Also, they referenced um, basically Levy's also in this episode, of course, helping out with you know the initial, um, the initial whatever you want to call it, the kind of inspiring them to get their eggs in a row as far as cleaning up. So let's not forget the blood that's on Levy's hands in this episode, right? <laughs> like. Seriously, he's just, uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's good at his job, even if it means innocent or, you know, innocent people basically getting killed. Um, but I know that you had asked me in episode two about some of the influences that would have gone into right. Levy's character composition, and I, I, I drew a blank there. I still don't have everything that I would like on the background of Levy as far as like everyone who's involved. But yeah, and listening to the commentary, Simon gave me some clues or maybe, uh, you know, kind of helped kind of, you know, just draw a little 
baseline for some of the suspicions that I've had or confirm some of the suspicions that I've had rather, uh, that, you know, he said there's two or three lawyers that went into, uh, Levy's character composition, but I definitely know one of them has to be William Purpura, if I'm saying that right, or Purpura. He's a really prominent, uh, and like not only prominent lawyer in Baltimore, but now nationally and even internationally, um, uh, he, yeah, he has like a crazy history of defending uh, all sorts, all types of clients in Baltimore. Uh, on the drugs, on the drug side of things, uh, drug organization side of things, he, well, he's sneezing. Thanks for muting. Uh, <laughs> Continue. He, uh, I'm at least positive that he defended uh, Linwood Rudy Williams, the huge like. West Side drug player who got arrested and tried and convicted in the early 90s, I think, kind of took over after uh, Little Melvin and then Warren Bordley were subsequently arrested in the mid to late 80s. Uh, and yeah, he's just like, he's so, yeah, just William Perpera, crazy. <laughs> he's still active, so I gotta be careful here. But he not only defended, yeah, like, drug dealers in, in Baltimore, um, also D.C. politicians. I don't have all the names here. Again, just like a preliminary glimpse into Levy's character composition because there's still two, at least two more lawyers out there that I don't know about. So it's going to be fun, Willie, for me. It's going to keep me busy and sane here trying to figure that out or on the contrary, driving insane, <laughs> trying to figure it out. But check this out. William Perpera also defended Daniel Herschel, the... Uh, gun trace task force defendant he he was one of the cops heavily entrenched in sergeant wayne jenkins uh, corrupt outfit and daniel herschel's like yeah he just he i think yeah he was pretty active in the eastern and then he joined gun trace task force but he's the guy if you remember i even sent you the uh the clips of the young moose shout out the rapper from baltimore who right. like wrote diss tracks <laughs> like toward directed <laughs> at daniel herschel for like constantly harassing him and there's like crazy tracks like now they know i think where we'll have uh, young moose's lawyer talking about daniel herschel's uh harassment of his client uh daniel herschel got 18 years in that gun trace task force uh you know, case. Uh, so yeah, William Perpera also involved in there. So at the time of this like DVD commentary, obviously a long time ago, Simon, like he like chose probably one of the greasiest, craziest lawyers to be part of Levy's composition without even knowing how crazy, yeah, how his career trajectory would take (laughs) off. Like not only with drug dealers, but also defending corrupt city cops and check this out. I just said that, but hey, whatever. <laughs> it goes even further, Willie. William Perpera actually even defended El Chapo as of late. <laughs> oh, <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about, yeah, I mean, obviously on a local scale, definitely influences Baltimore drug game, like as far back as the 80s and 90s. Uh, but yeah, he defended El Chapo as late as recently as you know 2018 in his case. Uh, so you know we all know how that ended with him getting sentenced to what like 30 years in 2019. But yeah, I mean that's a that's a crazy uh, 
maybe yeah like his recent work has transcended what levy's role was in <laughs> just baltimore because <laughs> defending el chapo kind of took him out of the uh, <laughs> yeah just got baltimore. so much more and more <laughs> far more demented the fact outpaced the fiction (laughs) yeah pretty nuts man but uh so yeah again more more coming on levy's uh character it's uh his composition and and historical uh inspirations but yeah there was a little more oh yeah the uh the guy that we mentioned who plays the uh, state's attorney who's obviously censuring uh ronnie perlman for allowing everyone to get into to all these donors business portrayed by doug roberts again this could probably fit into all the pieces matter but yeah he's a an actual baltimore uh figure in the radio uh world if you will um and also an actor in a lot of kind of like local productions like uh john waters right and right. Barry Levinson's work, and he was the uh, radio voice on WBAL, but he left to uh, work on some other projects. So David Simon tying in everything. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's probably more. But uh, some great stuff, though. Well, oh yeah, here's one more. Sorry. Um, well, I don't know if this fits under it, Willie, but I noticed a phrase that led me to like uh, a key, uh, you know, uh, identifier that you know Pelicanos is, uh, you know, writing on this show again. Death is not his only, you know, strong suit. <laughs> yeah, because Wallace, uh, when he comes back, and they're kind of there is in that scene uh, around centered around the couch and kind of like. You know, Poot and Bodie are giving him a hard time. Uh, Wallace is like uh, t- trying to defend his time out there. It's like talking about there's a bunch of Bamas, and that's definitely something Pelicanos references often. Like, I think it's like a DC term more so, but um, yeah, it's basically what it sounds like. Like, you know, just like country <laughs> dudes or like country guys who, in contrast to the more urban, uh, chic that wallace and d'angelo and you know they they come correct but uh but yeah sorry um sidetracking there some terminology but clay clay davis i had mentioned obviously inspired by some uh shady politicians which baltimore and no short supply of especially in that time time frame of the uh you know 80s 90s i mean even moving forward currently uh you know Baltimore has had its share of controversial political figures, but I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I've said my suspicions like Clarence Mitchell III, who got in trouble for uh, basically giving little Melvin 50,000. No, no, vice versa. Melvin gave Melvin some, got in yeah. trouble for giving Clarence, yeah. Yeah, he, he got in trouble for, sorry, receiving $50,000 from little Melvin uh, for getting like a leg up in in housing development similarly to what maybe we see the you know the t- the lead into the to the future of clay davis's character and lester's finding that baltimore sun article in the trash about the housing developments or downtown you know all that stuff that's going to be occurring as far as uh constructions you know concerned um but uh, yeah david simon said that 
this uh, interaction between Daniels and Davis, Clay Davis, was actually uh, something that occurred between, again, he didn't name the exact figure that was having that conversation, but between uh, unnamed political figure, corrupt politician, and Bishop Robinson, who was the police commissioner back in that time frame. So, uh, again, I got more digging to do. But, yeah. So, uh, last one here. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've read any H.L. Mencken, but I haven't. So um, I have not either, unfortunately. Yeah, the line of uh, H.L. <laughs> Mencken basically, uh, we may have talked about him like way back in our first uh, recordings that, you know, maybe we can uncover one day or if they haven't been like destroyed for, for good reason pretty pretty awful <laughs> but uh yeah basically he's a son of baltimore like west baltimore grew up in that area and in, in early like the turn of the 20th century he would have been in his early 20s and he's like you know a crit- critic of uh yeah modern like english language again i haven't read him so this, <laughs> could, this is all like unfounded uh but anyways, he got like famous H.L. Mencken for his commentary on the Scopes trial, right? The uh, that big, like, it was about like evolution. I don't know. I hope so. But it was like a huge trial that captivated America, and he like his satire kind of got him, you know, to some notoriety. But then basically the point, uh, the Wire Universe callback, of course, trying to stay on theme here is like Clay Davis saying, you know, like you, you got to send him so far out daniels uh on a beat that he'll see the philadelphia cops like coming at him and right. i guess that's a story <laughs> uh yeah so the story like simon uh said was pulled directly from an hl menken uh like story yeah someone's gonna get sent so far out that you're gonna see the philadelphia reporters coming at you so kind of a journalistic parallel there but uh, anyways, I uh, hope that wasn't too disjointed and uh, just like all over the place. But, you know, planting some seeds there for future parts, you know, surrounding Levy's composition and just a little little background there. I but, appreciate uh, you laying the groundwork there. Yeah, for sure. All right. <laughs> all right. So do you want to get into like all the pieces matter, Willie? I know this is like probably going to be one of the hardest hitting segments uh for this you know as far as like the season's concerned we got we got a lot to talk about i'm sure i have some thoughts about all the pieces matter yeah yeah this segment where we kind of get into like a behind the scenes uh cinematic stuff with the cast and crew um, Hell yeah! If you if you allow me, I just have some thoughts about how brilliantly this episode unfolds. Oh, um, please do. So one of the first things I notice is that they continue to play on the whole uh, mirror motif or theme, if you will. In the first scene we see yeah. of Avon, he's like staring at himself directly in the mirror, um, like talking about how messed up everything is going with, uh, you know, the fallout from all the poor decision making that has been made uh, within the Barksdale organization. 
So him like kind of like staring at himself in the mirror, you know, expressing his frustration has a lot to say about, uh, you know, how he sees himself and like how he might feel insecure as a leader right now with everything kind of like crumbling around him. Um, and there's also another like little brilliant mirror moment uh, with quite a, a, a good lead up into it. So the scene in which D'Angelo goes in uh, to Orlando's attic or whatever to talk to uh, Stringer and Avon, where they kind of like press him for information about Wallace. Um, I really like the way this scene plays out because it's just like an isolated thing where we see D'Angelo going into the attic. We don't see him in like the rest of the building of Orlando's, right? He tells them that, you know, oh, Wallace isn't a problem. Don't worry about him. And he exits. And then it immediately pans over to Chardine, who's just like sitting right outside. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of like brilliantly just like and seamlessly, I'd say, transitions into that whole uh, aspect of the plot where Chardine is kind of like... um, keeping an eye on things for the detail and, you know, trying to infiltrate them. Um, So we see her kind of like playing around with her hair, which is just like a subtle allusion to, (laughs) yeah, my, I have, yeah. You're playing around with your hair, (laughs) Willie? Yeah, I don't have any hair right now. (laughs) But she's like, she's playing around with her hair and just like a subtle little allusion to the fact that she has like a wire in her hairpiece or whatever. Then Avon comes out to let somebody else into his office. And there's a brief moment where he looks into the mirror kind of like at Chardine where there's a moment that like he could be like suspicious of something about her, but it's like such a fleeting little thing that has like Chardine like really like on the ropes for a second worrying that she's gotten found out, but his like attention is like immediately drawn to something else uh, with people like talking too much, like right outside of the meeting room. Um, So I really like the way the mirror shot is used in that instance of just like a potential threat to Chardin's safety with him like maybe suspecting her of something, but then like immediately having his attention drawn to something else. Um, I really like the way that unfolded. And also like the way she's like playing with her hair and the microphone immediately goes, immediately makes us transition into the van to hear uh, Lester voices frustration about not being able to hear anything on the microphone because she keeps messing around with it, but also reinforces uh, the fact that, yeah, they're missing out on a lot of crucial information right now because she's like outside of the location where they're having... A, like fateful conversation about something that's really going to affect their police work there and like they don't even know what kind of conversation they're having because they're stuck with Chardine's like amateurish amateurish sleuthing there so brilliant kind Amateur. of like brilliant transitions in that one scene that shows all the different aspects of uh, the detail not getting it right and you know the organization like the heavy duty organization from the Barksdale crew. Uh, they're, they're both institutions working against each other for crucial information in that moment. And neither of the crews even 
really notice uh how close they are to one and one another so yeah i thought that was pretty pretty brilliant and um also i have a little more thought to uh express express about the whole wallace scene um again it's the way they kind of uh visually play off the parallels between the barksdale crew and the detail and how similar they are to each other uh, in the scene where we see Poot and Bodhi ascending into the vacant, getting ready to kill Wallace, um, we see Bodhi above Poot and the staircase uh, kind of like subtly beckoning for Poot to come up the stairs and do his duty, so to speak, so that they could remain relevant within the Barksdale crew, even though Poot doesn't really want to. And that directly mirrors the scene later on where uh, McNulty and Lieutenant Daniels have arrested Avon, but they can't get Stringer because they don't have sufficient evidence for that. Um, When Lieutenant Daniels is at the bottom of the staircase leading out of Orlando's, McNulty stays at the top uh, because he's in kind of like a similar position as Poot in the moments right before they kill Wallace. He's in a similar position with uh, him not wanting to be a part of his job or a part of his institution because I think we all know that if McNulty had his way he was and he was standing there, he would have either like killed Stringer or arrested him and gone outside the the parameters of his of his uh job description so i thought that was pretty interesting that uh even in the script uh david simon and george pelicanos were talking about how those two situations are going to directly mirror each other of uh mcnulty finding himself in a similar position um on the opposite end of the law uh so to speak and then also i really thought it was killed him what I thought something bad might happen, but I'm like, (laughs) you're like, much, we need some more violence. Yes. (laughs) This episode sets you like violence side up. (laughs) I also thought it was really funny how they uh, play with our expectations of the whole bust scene. Uh, when they, like even Avon and Stringer when they're just like sitting in the attic looking at the security camera footage what does Avon say he's like look at these Delta Force motherfuckers or Special yeah. Force motherfuckers uh, yeah. and even McNulty uh, comments on it when he sees like the SWAT team with all their tactical gear and everything getting ready to raid the strip club he says something like oh they think they're like Tony Montana's in there or something um And it's like just like a really funny way they kind of like make their way to the front of the line and tell everybody that they're not needed. They knock on the door and the big bouncer comes out and one guy just like kind of like slyly escorts him to the side. We're like like instantly uh, dispelling of the notion that we need to have like an action packed like kick down the door type sequence where every like heads are going to roll. They just flash bangs. Waltz in there calmly. Yeah. (laughs) Like ridiculous shit. And it really kind of like ratchets up the tension um, because I don't know about you because like when McNulty and Lieutenant Daniels 
go into the attic. This is the first time that uh, McNulty and Avon like really see each other. And you could cut the tension with a knife in that scene. Like it's so quiet and deliberate uh, the way they kind of reveal that Stringer, surprise, surprise, isn't going to be taken away in handcuffs. And yeah, so many different elements are at play in that one instance. And it's really intense. Um, and then yeah, it's uh, just like the whole Tony Montana thing. It's uh, interesting. Yeah, it's t- like tie into the whole, uh, you know, this, this whole notion of a drug dealer that, you know, you see in these, uh, you know, in, in other cop shows or movies, like right. it's just is really not a reality. Whereas you know Simon will say that, and he and you know his experience covering Ed Burns working on you know all these cases to to nab these high profile drug dealers. You know they they really were pretty you know inconspicuous in, in the way they rolled whereas you know i may have mentioned it like when burns or others were trailing uh you know lamont chin farmer they couldn't necessarily even make out who he was on his on a corner right surrounded by other potential drug dealers or just regular guys so it's like avon also kind of embodying this you know less than flashy drug lord so right it's so true um makes it seem so much more authentic uh another thing i wanted to talk about maybe like a decision on behalf of the the filmmakers of this episode uh there's a few confrontational scenes with uh daniels and burrell but there's the moment where Burrell finally brings up that he might have some knowledge of the dirt on Lieutenant Daniels. In scenes prior to that, Daniels was kind of like right across uh, the desk from him where they were having their kind of like arguments. But in this scene, (sighs) this might be kind of like inconsequential in me just splitting hairs, but I felt like there was some kind of like metaphorical significance to Daniel sitting in the chair back up against the wall instead of the chair directly across from Burrell at his desk, kind of like signifying oh. the the distance between them and their approaches to things now that they're like basically shouting and across shouting at each other from across the room. Um yeah, I feel like that it, it's their differences in approach has finally driven a a a wedge between them to where they can't even like be close to each other and discuss things reasonably. (laughs) Um, that's a great point. Also, also interesting to note. I, I know you, you know, you might have some more thoughts on this too, but, uh, the closing shot of this episode, David Simon and George Pelicanos noted that it wasn't even in the script, that it was a late minute edition where it's kind of just like a roaming shot of the orange couch, the infamous orange couch that we've all come to know and love, uh, just sitting there in the middle of the pit, empty with with nobody on it and no real like activity going on around it. It's really like quite a haunting image to end the episode out on, but um, it's uh, it ha- it 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 brings up a lot of mixed feelings with the viewer because we know that this was kind of like the communal gathering spot for a lot of people who feel like, you know, they might not have like a, a stable home to go into, but then at the same time it represents, you know, the detail kind of, uh, making a, a, an accomplishment that 
they more or less have shut down that like open air drug market in that place for the time being. So a lot of uh, complicated emotions to go out with on that on that final shot, I'd say. I'll, uh, I'll say, you know, <laughs> I tell you what, I tell you, <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's great. I can, I mean, I can't say it any better. So it's a great insight there on the couch. And, um, uh, you know, I think in the commentary, Pelicanos and Simon said, it's like, maybe it wasn't related to this. So I'll shut up, but <laughs> the couch, like oh, that's good. everything's empty, you know, you know, was yeah. Was it all worth? You know, was it all worth it? And I mean, Simon's. It's always going to be no. Like, it's just <laughs> things just got worse, and nothing's gotten better. In a lot of people's, you know, individual lives, and uh, as far as the city, like the situation's concerned, uh, because everything's cyclical as far as the drug game, and you know, but people's lives are still ruined and lost but yeah i I was going to uh bring up from all the pieces matter of course i mean we can't sit here and say that i mean the naming of this segment's not directly related to that right i mean i say it as if no no come on (laughs) it's just the best way to say well i mean the book is related i'm assuming to the quote by lester which is like you know, fair ground, right? Fair game right. Uh, for fans of the show. But I just wanted to get into the background behind, you know, this episode as far as Michael B. Jordan's concerned and, and all the actors. Obviously, he's like the heartbeat of the show at this point and it's being ripped out, you know, um, right. in front of everyone's eyes. So it's like a traumatic episode for uh, those, you know, obviously involved and all actors regardless apparently people even though they the shoot of the well maybe i got to come up with a better term the the uh, the filming of that last scene the shooting of wallace the murder of wallace is uh, apparently it took hours and hours like they just apparently they overshot it but you know it worked out they got obviously great great footage and it's a great scene however sad it is but uh a a lot of people who you know actors like for example andre royo who was a mentor to michael b jordan helping him get into the role or get into character rather and kind of get out of his head as far as portraying wallace was concerned uh showed up even though they had obviously you know andre was not even in this episode or you know a lot of people who knew like what's going to happen just kind of came as like out of respect to Wallace in a way. So it's kind of <laughs> crazy. Uh, and Michael B. Jordan told his mom, who I, you know, he's a minor, obviously I'm assuming his mom's like in Baltimore staying with him not to show up to the set because she gets, she would, you know, she gets emotional, I guess in his previous acting or as far as the show up to that point is concerned. I don't know all the context, but uh, he told her to stay away, you know, due to the death scene. But I guess when he came out after the shot, she was there anyways and like crying and stuff. So it's like (laughs) really heavy stuff. And yeah, just, I mean, Michael B. Jordan being such a young actor, really talented, obviously, just coming to terms with his character's death and how everyone was still reassuring you know that look uh you know you're going to have a career simon would say or told him you know it's like 
and others like oh if you, you know you're going to be remembered that's what a death scene is it's like it sucks but you know trust trust us and it's like now he's arguably the biggest star to come out of the show right <laughs> yeah he's huge um so it's pretty pretty mind-blowing but also interesting that you know his relationship with you know his co-stars in the context of this scene and you know the pit jd williams and trey cheney it's interesting to take into account whereas he and jd williams are both from newark new jersey so they uh, spent a lot of time you know getting to know each other and jd williams you know i'm assuming even though he's they're both supposed to be 16 right that's not true like jd williams is obviously a lot older than uh, than Michael B. Jordan because yeah, JD Williams played a character almost similar in a way to Bodie in Oz, which is like you know, before it's like at least a year or two before The Wire, right? Um, so and he was also like, but he was in adult jail then, I think. So I don't understand how all, all that adds up, but anyways, um, yeah, just like how JD Williams kind of shared the same sentiments you know as far as like this is a huge moment for you everyone's going to remember you and uh but michael lee jordan said that even though they were really close it's like in the moment of that scene it's like they had never met or they didn't know each other at all so it's like speaking to the gravity of you know how great of a portrayal they they both you know were able to manifest if that makes sense right you're no, you're you're great. the actor so i don't know <laughs> i mean but, uh, you bring up great points though yeah i mean it's just I, it's you know these are like it's an amazing show but these are still teenagers you know it's like pretty mind-blowing when you when i think of yeah. like what other like teenage shows portray you know how how heavy this is but this is one of the craziest things actually that i found out or like rehash and going back through this this portion of all the pieces matter the book is that uh trey cheney who i thought arguably gives maybe the best performance in this scene uh like as far as the emotion that's evoked like like the tears you know as he's putting the final shots into wallace and, and everything leading up he actually had just experienced a huge loss in his personal life where someone who was like a brother to him someone you know who's really close like basically family even if they weren't blood related was abducted and killed and and you know that's he said where a lot of the emotion uh you know kind of channeled into this into this scene and how it affected him because i mean it's like to have something so recently happened that was so real you know in a similar fashion i can't imagine imagine. how yeah like wow i mean but maybe this was like therapeutic in a way or he was able to maybe channel some emotions that he you know i'm just again that's uh you know i'm just speculating but amazing performance by trey cheney as well so yeah but uh yeah it's just oh yeah also i mean we can't uh we can't leave out also though that uh in in the midst of all this like oh my goodness pelicanos like he wrote a masterpiece here and he's like talking about how this is the hardest scene i've ever had to write and like maybe you know it's his most well known if you haven't you know if you're just a fan of the show and don't know him from all his novels but you know, and, and, you know, Simon, like, who's, we know can be very cynical and like hard, like hard ass really. 
uh <laughs> and his opinions just like really in love with the scene as well and like Pelicanos is working then who who else but Ed Burns on the sideline like I don't know. I don't. I didn't really like it the way they portrayed Bodie, <laughs> like hesitating to shoot him, like he's supposed to be this like psychopath or whatever sociopath, but he's hesitating. So, and then I don't know. It didn't like Simon gave one of those long responses, like in the Chekhovian model or Chekhovian model, like character arc. I don't know if you have any background to help me out with, like what the beef was as far as Burns. Not that it's a beef, but like. You know, Burns not really a fan of of it, considering the way Bodhi's character uh, is going to evolve moving forward, and like where the discrepancy beyond just like, oh yeah, it's not logical. Maybe that Bodhi hesitates before shooting someone. Uh, you know, do you have any mm, thoughts, thought or can you help me out with that, or what do you think? I mean, <laughs> I thought I I. <laughs> I felt like it was pretty warranted uh, that J.D. Williams gave the performance that he did in that instance because he does like act like a hard ass throughout the whole show, but he is still supposedly just a a kid at this point. So maybe in that moment he's like realizing the whole gravity of the situation and what he's about to do. I don't know. I felt like it it came across pretty clearly and well myself not to uh i don't i don't i, I don't want to get ed you don't want to sound like a, or anything but uh, you don't want to sound like a draft dodging peace freak it's not a vehement disagreement <laughs> yeah exactly also I, that was his line that. right yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if yeah. i stopped you but sorry about that to get into the way of your creative flow but if you want to like now like just yeah that line inspired by at Burns, there I'm explaining. Right. I'm still on your thunder. No, that's it. <laughs> no, that's fine. Let's remember who reminded who that Ed Burns was a combat veteran in <laughs> in <laughs> Vietnam, along with being a Baltimore City cop teacher, you know, and showrunner. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, D'Angelo. You know the the ending. Like one of my favorite scenes, something that I definitely am guilty of rewatching the clip of on YouTube many, many times. Like in in between the first time I watched the show and the second or third time. Me too. It's just yeah. a brilliant scene. Uh, Lawrence Gilliard Jr. Gilliard. It's, it's Larry though, right? Because I I have a note here from the commentary, Larry Gilliard Jr. But in the book, it's Lawrence. Yeah, I've- but really phenomenal actor. Um, like a native son, if I'm if I'm using that word correctly or term of Baltimore, he he went to Harlem Park mm-hmm. Middle School, like really not far from yeah where all this is going down. He grew up like yeah pretty much right in that area of Lexington Terrace or nearby. He said that he played on like the football team associated with Lexington Terrace before it all came down, but then he uh, I think. Well, Simon mentioned he attended Baltimore School of the Arts, and then he mentioned that around you know high school he went elsewhere to school. That kind of got him out of that like environment, more or less, and kind of put him on the pathway to becoming the great actor that he is. But uh, yeah, just I mean, I know you had shared some interesting stuff. I mean. 
you know, but maybe from your perspective, like being someone with acting experience and all that, like uh, that, the lines and how it all like came, came together. It's just that they had uh, stated that it was only scripted for him to ask where's Wallace once, right? Isn't that? Yeah, I think that's, I, I think that like Clement Virgo said, yeah, I guess, or he was referenced where Larry Gilliard Jr. said like he got a look from him more or less. Like, you know, he said it once or something like that. And then he kind of gave him like, an eye to maybe like they both they both knew like non-verbally like it meant you gotta you gotta you know just go just go in go go for it and then simon said that it i think he said it wasn't necessarily scripted but it was instinctual for him to just go for it so i mean you know it's both you know regardless it's brilliant acting right i thought it was a really good scene the way it yeah I felt like it needed him shouting like that. Yeah, yeah. He loved he loved Wallace. I think it's tough. Yeah, brutal. But yeah, iconic scene, and I'm glad he uh, you know let his instincts like take over. So. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Run rampant. <laughs> All right. How we doing, Willie? You good? Is it, is it warm there? How's the air quality? It's like. Uh, the air. Qu- <laughs> no. <laughs> um. So you want to move on to uh, Geo Genius? Uh, yeah, one thing left though. What, like when they're messing with Wallace when he came back from uh, from Grandma's place? <laughs> Grandma's place. Uh, there, there's some like funny jokes that were going back and forth. Like, uh, I guess he said, Poot says to Wallace, like, you know, take care, like, something about his Sean John or something like that. And then I guess Pelicanos yeah. and Simon were talking in the commentary about how uh, there's like more commentary in that scene that actually had to get cut out. Just it was the final cut made to get, or one of the final cuts to get to the minute allotment of whatever 56 minutes and <laughs> yeah. apparently like I, I don't know if i understood it correctly it was like poot poot bought some fake sean john or something like that and everyone was just <laughs> roasting him for it so like it was like a inside joke that we didn't really all know the context of because you know things got cut down but again it works brilliantly because that's you know the show is all like in between the lines anyways but i guess you know it's just like something Pelicanus was inspired to write on based on uh like he got a watch when he was a kid or something but didn't know that it was fake or whatnot but yeah. it just shows like yeah Pelicanus is genius in that regard like able to tie in something like that in the context or relative to his upbringing like in an immigrant greek background in dc to like tie it into urban culture like we all know that's one of the like of course us growing up not that we had had things or wore things like sean john or jordan's but we all know what happened if someone's like was accused of wearing fake jays or stuff like that it's like all (laughs) is all bad right yeah exactly but uh yeah, I thought that was that would have been funny to keep in, but <laughs> well, yeah, let's get in. You want to get into that Ge- geography? Uh, yeah, let's ge- get into ge- Geo Genius. Well, I mean, I kind of already mentioned like uh, some of the establishments. Um, 
that were brought up. I mean, I had mentioned Priebus Brothers. It's like, that's on South Broadway. Broadway is a north-south street that runs pretty much through the heart of east, the east side and connects all the way down to Fells Point. So Priebus Brothers, that's on uh, Broadway and Fleet. So found that, you know, interesting. It's, it's closed, looks like permanently. And also another food spot, Sterling's, referenced by D'Angelo, where Brianna, right. his mom, comes through with the, uh, you know, the assists on the, uh, the what, are they crab cakes or rolls? It's like a... And you say spicy fish cakes or something? Uh, sounds, it sounds really good. Uh, but yeah, Sterling's, I mean, let's just say, Will, if you and I finally made it out to uh, to Baltimore someday, uh, we're definitely going to, and it's, and we're going to aim for an 85 degree day so we can put you in a prop, prop Joe <laughs> suit. Prop Joe suit, yeah. <laughs> we can put you in a, a big guy suit uh, and let's see how you feel. Um, but anyway, uh, Sterling's is up on like 29th. Uh, that's in the Remington neighborhood, which is, I think, part of uh, like the old, you know, we talked about Billy Land and where a lot of the uh, poor, poor white folk who like moved into Baltimore to work in the wartime industry from Appalachia and those areas settled. It's like it's just west of Charles Village, which I don't know if I'm going to have to backtrack here on something I said about uh, Clark Peters buying a home instead of just renting one when, you know, like we talked about his bohemian lifestyle. And I had right. said, like, I don't know if I dug myself a hole saying, oh, yeah, he, he bought his house like out somewhere farther in the county or more rural. But it was actually in Charles Village, if I'm not mistaken. So that's that's pretty much just north of like downtown and just below Hopkins Homewood, which is where Johns Hopkins is located. But yeah, uh, what I was going to say, though, before I got into all this other diet into this diatribe about this and that, Willie, is that if we were looking for spicy fish cakes on our trip, on our first trip to Baltimore, we we wouldn't find them at Sterling's. It's also permanently closed. So, oh, man. yeah. Nice. Hey, man, a lot changes, apparently. Nineteen, Puts a wrench 18 in years. whole Baltimore food tour plan. I know. <laughs> Previous brothers, no chili dogs, Willie. No spicy fish cakes, Sterling's. But hey, hey, the gods will not save you at gmail.com. Link us uh, some, some good recommendations out there if you're out there. <laughs> uh, oh, um, it's like you, uh, you hit something that made your mic, like, stand, go... So then, like, I instinctually just, like, karate chop my mic. That was weird. <laughs> Stop messing with me over there, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, we actually... So, I love how I get into all these, like... Like, Wallace goes to the Eastern Shore. Oh, yeah, he's Bayside. He's this, he's that. And I'm like, where where could it be? You're, you're asking me, I don't know. Is, is the road windy? I'm like, I don't know, Willie. I don't know all the information. And then literally, like, the next episode, it's like, Daniel says, yeah, uh, we got to get someone out to Cambridge to, to, or like, I took him to Cambridge, and now we got to send someone to go track him down, yada, yada. Right. Cambridge is, yeah. That's that's this, the municipality or this, the town. I don't want to call it a city, but it all checks out, Willie. Cambridge is Bayside. It's on the part of the eastern shore that touches yeah the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a little ways down uh, as far as, you know, across from Baltimore. You know, you'd have to go west or east, excuse me, and uh, – <laughs> 
then head south uh, along one of the highways. But yeah, from looking at the map, it didn't look too windy, the road. So, you know, I don't know. Oh, that's I, good. It might clear up uh, while it's potentially getting sick and Daniels' car. I mean, it could have happened regardless. Right. But I did, I did a little research into Cambridge. It's actually, yeah, it's the largest municipality in Dorchester County. Uh, so apparently Dorchester County was established um, because um, basically the Calverts, which uh, was pretty much the, you know, as far as, you know, the European gaze of history is concerned, the founders of Maryland, the colony of Maryland um, and the Lord, like they were the Lords of Baltimore or whatever. Um, you know, they basically got the grant from the king of England to do what they wanted with, you know, native people's land and so forth. And the, the Calverts, they, uh, I think the initial guy, he died before it really all got took off. But his son, if I'm not mistaken, Cecilius Calvert was then like passed down the deed to the colony or whatnot. And I mean, I, I may have referenced some roads and so forth. Like it, it kind of ties into uh, maybe a little bit of, you know, modern, the modern layout of Baltimore because uh, Calvert Street is, yeah, one of the predominant streets that heads through downtown Baltimore. It's where, like, a lot of the administrative buildings, like, for example, Clarence Mitchell Jr. Courthouse is located, the father of Clarence Mitchell the third who we talked about in his dealings with little melvin and then calverton road is a road that i mentioned where we believe that jimmy and bunk do some drinking on the railroad tracks and it was like a inspired potentially by the western district uh, hangout spot so yeah they were uh, they gave the earl of dorset the land for dorchester county out on the eastern shore so uh yeah and also dorchester county is where harriet tubman was born into slavery um so wow kind of crazy time so yeah just if you're out there thinking oh maryland yeah it's pretty far up north mid-atlantic no slavery definitely was alive and well there too even though they didn't secede from the Union and the Civil War, you know, still below the Mason-Dixon line and freedom, whatever yeah. that meant in that context, which we know, you know, up on Pencil- the border of Pennsylvania and, and Maryland. But we all know that just because you made it north didn't necessarily guarantee freedom for enslaved peoples. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Cambridge, uh where Wallace, Great. Wallace's grandma lived. So, yeah, if he would have just stayed Sound down in, in Dorchester County, things would have uh, shook out a little bit better. If only. He got sick of the Bamas. What can we say? And, yeah, but you, you had know. some great insight there. Thanks for uh, laying it down. Yeah, yeah, thanks uh, for bearing with me. I think that was it. I, I might have had some other notes here and there, but, you know. But, uh... Yeah, I don't know what else we got, Willie. We got GeoGenius, Stuff You Forgot. Stuff You Forgot, you remember? Is there anything that... uh, Well, I don't really... uh, Yeah, that... The whole... uh, Yeah... Ronnie Perlman getting in trouble and us meeting the real state's yeah. attorney. I, I, I totally, yeah, miss, like, 
that was news to me. Uh, I know you had mentioned Nikisha Lyles uh, getting murdered, and I, yeah, I kind of, I remember them maybe talking about it, but I, I don't, yeah, like the actual crime scene and seeing her dead and stuff. That was kind of, uh, yeah, like, wait, what? Um, really intense stuff there. Um, and again, yeah, the whole stuff with like the campaign finance uh, scandal or corruption. Um, didn't realize necessarily that it was uh, brought up this soon in the show because I, I just automatically always assumed like the the hardcore political stuff is in, you know, season three. So, yeah, I, I guess I didn't remember like too clearly that they had been bringing it up uh, this early on in the show. And again, I know I mentioned this before. It's a very... Uh, relevant topic to what's going on in today's uh, political atmosphere whatever you want to call it uh campaign finance reform is a hot button issue so ahead of its time this show was i tell you that much but there isn't really there isn't yeah. really like anything else i think i like forgot like the image of the orange couch at the end i always like from the first time i saw it i always remembered it as a very powerful image and it's stuck with me and has had me associate that image with this episode uh in particular very powerful stuff there yeah yeah um i guess yeah from a more well, yeah, tying into what you said about the ca- campaign finance and all that, um, Lester's find of the piece of you know the newspaper article in the trash. With, oh, yeah. uh, I was kind of like, oh yeah, that's where it all comes from. Like this whole, you know, because I know that I, first couple times that that whole plot line thoroughly confused me. Like, wait, what? I don't, I don't understand what all this money and this development and that. And I'm like, oh, it all comes back to Lester just happening to look down in the uh, in the trash because he and Prez are having some chicken or like whatnot, and there's all the grease stains. And then I thought yeah. it was in the commentary, Pelicans trying to rag on like like poke the bear with Simon like oh like uh, Baltimore Sun in the trash huh what does that have to yeah. tell us he's like what are you trying to wait what like, <laughs> hey shout out I, he actually complimented the Baltimore Sun David Simon like thanks for letting us yeah. use a real a real uh, authentic copy of it and I also I was also gonna like ask you if this uh, all fits into your grand fried chicken conspiracy oh. theory somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Yeah, more chicken, like cracking yeah. a huge, uh, huge lead open, right? Like they have to like Lester Freeman has to get behind like the greasy chicken bones to get to the real information. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, somehow like not giving the audience what they want. I'm I'm not sure. I don't know. I just uh, wanted to know if you had uh, any insights on that. That's brilliant. I honestly I forgot to call back to my chicken conspiracy. See, thank you. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great, that's a really, that's a great take. We'll, we'll run with this, surely. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I mean, if you don't have anything else to add, uh, I think that pretty much. We cleaned up nicely. Yeah. Yeah. We cleaned up. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. All right. Cool. 
Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. It's been really great talking about this fantastic episode. Uh, if you can, please uh, follow us on all the social media outlets. We're pretty active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You know, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a nice review. Support us at anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. Yes, thank you to our supporters out there. And we look forward to any potential engagement via social. Uh, also, we're uh, available for any inquiries you may have, comments, questions, concerns. Our email is thegodswillnotsaveyou at gmail.com. So, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out if you have any uh, anything you'd like to let us, uh, let us know or be aware of. Also, we want to give a shout out to our uh, graphic designer, Andre Tesnis, who did our great podcast logo. So, big thanks to him. Shouts out to Andre. Um, yeah, really talented there. And also thanks to uh, Mostart, who who hooked us up with the uh, intro and outro music. So if you want to hear more of his work, check him out. His website is mostart.com. Great stuff from Mostart there. Uh-huh.